Um, thank you all for coming. Thanks for learning with me. Uh, so this is the fourth shear, four out of five, I guess, uh, that we're doing on Rabbi Nach. It's okay. They're they're recorded if you want to subject yourself to it. But uh, uh, thank God people have been listening. And uh, I I know that we've been starting uh, with stories, but I thought it might be uh, good to uh, shed light on a, a story we had told previously uh, that another person who had listened uh, shared with me. That person was my dad, Abba Mori. And my dad was listening. You know, my dad back in the day, even though I was a... No matter what stories I tell myself, I was pretty terrible. I'm not a, like a great athlete. I'm like an athlete that pretends. Um, same thing with hockey. But my dad would come to all my hockey games. And so now my dad listens to my shirim. I'm not so good at giving the shirim, but at least my dad listens. Um, so my dad shared something interesting. We were talking about the Hungarian wine a few weeks ago. And I was like, Rabbi Nachman was described, basically used as a mashal, as a parable, to describe Rabbi Nachman's... Um, to describe Rabbi Nachman's Torah as this Hungarian wine, that if you taste the Romanian wine, which is inferior, so once you've tasted Hungarian wine, you know, you can never, you can never go back to cheap stuff. You know, you know what the good, the, the real stuff tastes like. So interestingly enough, and I, and I said, you know, I don't know what this is talking about, I don't know Hungarian wine, and my dad said to me, he said, actually, and I'm going to share with you the actually, uh, I'm going to read to you the story of Toke wine. Anybody heard of Toke wine? So, the wines of the Hungarian region of Toke, or as they say it, Tokaj, are a window into the past. Tokaji was once one of the most important wines in the world. It was coveted by royal customers, including Hungarian noblemen, and uh, even Austrian composer Joseph Hayden received some payments in the form of this wine. And the sweet wines of Toke are one of the most compelling stories of Hungary's role in the modern history of wine. The most desirable of it is Tokaji Eskensia, which is a liquid goo that contains as much sweetness as straight syrup. It can age because of the sugar content for about 200 years. Even the finest Bordeaux turns into vinegar after a certain amount of decades. So that's Hungarian wine. So Rabbi Nachman knew... You can never doubt Rabbi Nachman. He really knew exactly what he was talking about when he gave a mushal of Hungarian wine. Uh, the story actually gets even, uh, even more interesting because, you know, in, my dad also pointed out to me, and I did a little research on it. I'm just going to share with you this. So I went to the Herzog family wine, uh, page. You guys have heard of Herzog wines. So Baron Herzog, right? How did he become Baron Herzog? Well, the Herzog family, I'm going to read here, um, the Herzog family, here's a picture of Baron Herzog. Uh, the Austrian Hungarian, so they founded a brewery in the Tarnava region of Slovakia. Uh, there was a distillery, a brewery, a winery, and it would sustain the family for the next century and beyond. The Austro Hungarian Empire grew with great innovation, became a powerful world force, and Emperor Franz Josef. Parenthetically, uh, we inherited a, a, a machser from my great aunt Selma, uh, which has a prayer. Uh, they were Hungarian, uh, which has a prayer. Uh, you know, we say, for the welfare of Emperor Franz Josef. Uh, close parentheses. Emperor Franz Josef was so impressed with Herzog wines that he dubbed Philip Herzog a baron and asked the Herzog family to produce wine for the royal court in the 19th century. So there you have it. Rabbi Nachman knew exactly what he was talking about when he gave the mashal. I believe it was two weeks ago we talked about Hungarian wine, or last week we talked about Hungarian wine. So when Rabbi Nachman gave the mashal of Hayayin Hahungari, 
uh, that once they had tasted the Hungarian wine, they couldn't taste any inferior wine, which we liken to the Mefursamim uh, Shelsheker, right? These famous uh, charlatans that other people may learn Torah from uh, in Rabbi Nachman's estimation. So he knew exactly what he was talking about with this Hungarian wine. Who knew? Uh, and, and that is the theme that we are going to come back to a little bit, is that there are, indeed, for many of the stories of Rabbi Nachman, at least historical uh, points that we could gesture to to help map out our understanding of the stories, uh, certain motifs in Kabbalah that we can, uh, that we can point to, and, and even things in Chazal uh, that we could say are being referenced to Rabbi Nachman's stories. And we talked about this a little bit with HaMelech HaAnav, with the humble king. Uh, but I want to return to that a little bit later. Uh, but before that, now I do want to really begin this year by starting with a story. We're going to start with the first story. I'm going to translate it. It's here in Hebrew. Um, And by doing so, I want to say that today we're going to delve into some of the most difficult and uh, and impactful aspects of Rabbi Nachman's uh, Torah, which is the concepts of truth, its relationship to madness, and and, and what that that means uh, for us. And and, and we're also going to touch a little bit upon interpretation. So we're going to tell a rather disturbing story. Um, and the story is called Tenda Urenda. And, uh, right, so there's Senorena, it's a different thing. And I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Here's, here's what happens when you're a little bit of an autodidact, when you're not learning from people like you should be, is that pronunciations, I've learned this the hard way more than once when I've embarrassed myself, but that's also good, as we'll see in the story. It's good to embarrass yourself sometimes. Um, it could be pronounced differently. I believe it's pronounced Tenda Urenda. Sammy, do you know? Tender, okay, tender and uh, this appears not in the uh, in the thirteen classic stories of Rabbi Nachman. This appears in uh, a later work collecting uh, Breslov traditions about Rabbi Nachman's stories called Maasiotu Mashalim or Sipurim Niflaim. It was published a, a lot later on, but it's uh, considered to be a true story and a true tradition, and uh, therefore we are going to uh, say it in the name of Rabbi Nachman Breslov. May his merit protect us. So, the story that Rabbeinu, Rabbeinu Rabbi Nachman told of the tenda urenda, which is the levush shal kumar, priest's garb, uh, canonicals, I think, is what we would call them, the garb of priest. And of course, uh, in Ukraine, in Poland, so priests, especially, I don't know what, what, which church they came in contact with, if it was the it was a Russian Orthodox church, I don't know who exactly, but, but priests would wear a certain identifiable garb. Um, Pam achas halach rav echad lekabets nedavos avur pidyon shivuyim o achnasas kali yisoma. There was a rabbi who was uh, traveling around, an itinerant, collecting funds for pidyon shivuyim, which is the redemption of captives, or achnasas kali yisoma, or uh, to be able to marry off an orphan bride. Two of the most important and uh, and most beautiful mitzvot that one can perform. You know the the sine qua non of chesed, the sine qua non of our acts of loving kindness. And this rabbi, collecting funds, reached the home of a certain rich, wealthy individual. He said, please, I want you to join with me in this mitzvah. And the wealthy man said to him, If I was convinced that your intentions were truly for the sake of heaven, that you're, that you're doing this for the right reasons, there's no ulterior motive or duplicity in what you're doing, so then for sure I would give you whatever you're asking for, no problem. Amalor Rav, so the Rav says, of, of course, 
Of course I'm doing this for the sake of heaven. I'm collecting money for pigeon shvim, redeeming captives, or to marry off an orphan girl. Amr lo ha'ashir, the rich person, the wealthy man said to him, Bezos shamayim. Here's how I'm going to know whether or not you're l'shem shamayim, whether or not indeed you truly are, whether or not you, you indeed truly are acting for the sake of heaven. Etzli nimsa malbush shalkumar. I have these garments, I have this tender and the, the garb of a priest. Ve'im til ba'shenu v'ta'avor ba'hashuk shalair shalosh ba'amim lavush kach and if you wear it and you go out to the marketplace of the city three times, so then I'm going to give you whatever you need. And the Rav said, okay, I'm going to do it. So he puts on the garments, puts on the garb of a priest. Everybody, when they saw this rabbi going out into the marketplace for the first time, they began to weep, they began to cry. They recognized him as a great rabbi, as a great Torah scholar, an important person. And here's how he's walking around. And the second time around, so some cried, and some of them started to laugh and to mock him. And by the third time, it reached violence, and they violently chased them away with stones, as if you were a crazy person. Dangerous. And after the third time had been satisfied, he returned to the, to the wealthy person, and he gave him all the money. But the rabbi wasn't satisfied with just the money at this point. The rabbi said, not only do I want the money for this mitzvah, but I'd like you to give me the garment that you made me wear those three times as well. I, wanna, I want that too. And it was given to him. And many years later, before the rabbi passed, he made a will. He said, I stipulate that when it comes time to bury me, my burial shroud will be from this priest's garment that I wore these three times. And they fulfilled it. And when they were wrapping him up in this burial shrouds made, fashioned from this garment, from the tender renda, when they went ahead and did that, there was a small portion that wasn't able to cover up his foot, a part of his leg. And they managed to go ahead and, and create, to fashion that part of the shroud from, from different fabrics. And after many years after that, so there came a reason that they needed to go ahead and exhume the cemetery and to, and to take the bodies out of the ground and to move them somewhere else, as happened Oftentimes, uh, people would go ahead and they would build over Jewish cemeteries, something that happens to this very day, right? We, we see in the news, right, certain Jewish cemeteries that there's uh, one or two Jews that are fighting so that, these, uh, that the, the kfarim, the graves of Jews, are not, uh, are not uh, moved away for some soccer field or something like that. So they're moving the bodies. And when it came time to move the rabbi's body, after so many years, they found that the body had not decomposed. Only that portion from the foot that hadn't been covered by the tender reenda 
that portion of the foot had started to decompose. And there was a great rabbi. And they want to know who's this individual that's buried in the tender enda. And they did a Shalas Chalom, which was a, a mystical a mystical process in which they would ask questions and try and receive it through a quasi-prophecy. And through the dream and through the Sheilas Chalom, they were able to ascertain who exactly this body what belonged to. Who was the person that had been Zoha, that had merited such a thing. Now, that's the story of Tenderenda. This story is, I think, monumental. I'm just going to add on. Is it a mashal? So, so, so we'll, go, we'll, we'll get, in, get into that in one second. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm reading it now as, as a mashal, mm-hmm. right? I'm reading, it, I'm reading it as a parable. There is a nusach, there is a, 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 an addendum printed in a later version of the story that is quite surprising that Professor Svimark brings here in his, uh, in his scholarly version of these stories. He writes the following, Al Hamuvalel, this appears in Siach Sarfei Kodesh, which we mentioned last week, which is a collection of Breslov aphorisms and teachings from much, much later on, printed in 1988. In there it says, That it wasn't a rabbi that we were talking about who was collecting the money. But it was referring to a simple individual, regular person. That's who it was referring to. I want to return to that in a moment. But what I see here, um, and, 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 and I'll give the, the preface following that I'll return to is that, is that when we go ahead and we try and understand the mashalim of Rabbi Nachman, certainly the smaller stories, so it's much easier to go ahead and to, to try and figure out what they're alluding to, what they're referring to, what the teaching is over here. I watched a, an amazing lecture by Professor Don Miron. Um, Don Miron, uh, it was sent to me by Paul Slater, who, uh, who, had been going, who has been auditing Don Miron's classes for a, 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 a few decades now, yeah. So Dom Yiron, right, Dom Yiron is an absolute giant of Hebrew literature and Yiddish literature. He teaches at Columbia University. And this was at a kennis, this was at a, um, a convocation, a conference on Rabbi Nachman's writings in the Van Leer Institute in Jerusalem. And Dom Yiron says something, he said a number of very provocative things, a genius, really. Um, he said, the fo- he, he, av- he advanced the following, he proposed the following thing. I don't know if it's true. I don't know how much I subscribe to it, but, but I want to put it out here. So we've been reading a lot of the smaller stories of Rabbi Nachman. We haven't delved that much just in the interest of time. And hopefully after the Ishirim, uh, people will be able, I mentioned uh, the a Palace of Pearls as a, a good entry into reading the stories in English, or Ravaria Kaplan's version in English of the, of the Sipurim Isis, the 13 classic stories. This is a much longer and, uh, and Miron says specifically referring to those. We do have uh, allusions in Rabbi Nachman's other writings or in other Kisvei Bressel. Rabbi Nachman gives the key, right? The mafteach. What's the, how do I understand this story? How do I figure out right, all the different elements in this story? How do I understand it? Right? It, it seems so weird. It seems so, so strange to me. What am I supposed to be gathering out of this? Is it, or maybe it's just meaningless after all. Which, of course, as we said in the first class, was indeed the stance of, of, of many thinkers, uh, especially masculine thinkers, that looked at the stories as nothing more than nonsense. However, Miron said the following thing. Miron certainly subscribes to the view that there is a, certainly a tremendous amount of illusion and, uh, and there are deep Kabbalistic motifs. All of this is there. But Miron said above all of this, and here's, here's his wild idea. He says we have to look at the stories of Rabbi Nachman as works of art, as works of literature. He said it can't be 
When you look at these stories, the Rabbi Nachman went ahead and understood as he was giving the story of the seven beggars, of the Misa, uh, uh, of the lost princess, of Misa Mibal Tefillah, that when Rabbi Nachman was telling these stories, especially the longer ones, that Rabbi Nachman intended at the very beginning, at the very outset, to have them packaged deals. That he's going ahead and giving the story, and, 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 and the nimshal, the way in which we understand the parable, is, is available to us if we were only to go ahead and to figure out which puzzle pieces to put in the right places. And he says it's not necessarily just a game of going ahead and looking at a void in the text and saying, oh, I've ascribed meaning to that. But he says rather he calls for us to look at it as works of art, spontaneous creations. We know that many, several of the stories were told over several weeks of time with breaks and interruptions and other Torah in between. And Reb Nassim, to be sure, tells us, Reb Nachman's great Talmud tells us to be sure that there are, are so many instances where Rabbi Nachman himself said, if you want to understand the story, take a look at the following Torah in Likutim Iran and Rabbi Nachman's more standard presentation of stories. All that having been said is that we still can't look at the creations of Rabbi Nachman, these literary creations, as, as anything less than spontaneous creations of art, as, as flows of inspiration, which means that there are going to be elements of the story that don't necessarily correspond easily to an interpretive framework that we can construct for it. Which means to say that in a certain sense, and this is where Miron gets even more provocative, in a certain sense, Rabbi Nachman's stories rise above or at least serve a very different purpose than the Torah, than the, than the standard, the more standard kind of, 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 of Jewish discourses, of Torah discourses that Rabbi Nachman gave. That they're meant to be looked at as, as works of art as well. And in doing so, they achieve something quite different, very, very different than Rabbi Nachman trying to tell stories. And, and Miron also says, and I'll end with this, because it's brilliant, brilliant lecture. Um, I, I tweeted it out if you want to read it, if you want to listen to it. Just amazing. Uh, Miron also says that perhaps, and this is an academic uh, assertion. I don't know if it's substantiated in, in traditional Breslov understandings of the stories, but Miron says that indeed that there were things that Rabbi Nachman could not say in his Torahs. There were ideas that even in the radical nature of Rabbi Nachman's Torahs, which are quite radical in their, own, in their own right, that there were things that Rabbi Nachman did not feel comfortable enough saying or did not feel were able to be said in the traditional garb of Torah, and therefore Rabbi Nachman went ahead and dressed it up, and dressed it up in these stories. To the most subversive, the most radical, the most... Um, the most outstanding notions that Rabbi Nachman had theologically and spiritually and religiously are contained indeed in these stories. And in a way, that, that, that's, that, that is the deepest interpretive framework, that we're looking at something that is maybe not more, but, but certainly a different vocation that Rabbi Nachman's telling of his Torah. And, and so now back to, so now we're going to go ahead and try and fit in the pegs a little bit. Um, and, and in doing so, I'm relying very heavily on, on an, another amazing book, um, I, I guess I could say, almost my friend, just to make me feel cool, um, uh, Ravel Hananir. Uh, Ravel Hananir, who was a, a, a visitor here in Lincoln Square Synagogue, uh, one of the main Talmidim of Rav Shagar. Uh, in, uh, uh, he's the editor of uh, Musaf Shabbat, um, which, is, which is an amazing uh, repository of, of the, the most cutting edge of religious Zionist and religious thinking in Israel. Uh, so he wrote a book called Yehudi Balayla, Masab Ikvot Chalomotav Shrabi Nachmami Breslov. He collected over here the dreams of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Rabbi Nachman didn't just tell stories, but he told over his dreams as well. 
and he didn't just tell parables also, but dreams as parables. So he has a, a, a brilliant study of the story of Tenderendus. A lot of my thoughts that I'm going to be saying right now are, are, are really inspired by Ravnir, and I don't think I would have gotten to them on my own without having uh, read what Ravnir uh, had to say about them. He's, he's amazing. He's really, he's like one of these gayish inducing figures. Like you just, like, how did they accomplish so much? And they're so young and like, Maybe I should just give up. Like, what am I? He's, he's a, a genius. So I, I'm going to share a few, a few ideas. Everybody has heard the story now. Keep the story in mind. The first idea is the following. Uh, and, and, and I apologize for the rather disjointed nature of my doing this. Um, but hopefully, hopefully I'll say something that makes sense. The first thing to, to, that, that presents itself over here is the concept of, uh, of hitchapsut. Hitchapsut in Hebrew, uh, it means to, to, uh, to disguise oneself. Hitchapes. Interestingly enough, uh, the shorish there also is the same shorish as searching, lechapes, right? What does it mean? And, and obviously there's echoes of Purim throughout all of this. And what does this mean when somebody, uh, when somebody dresses up? What does it mean when someone disguises themselves? Of course, in the Talmud, uh, we have, uh, there's a book called, for the, Nathan Englander wrote a book called For the Relief of Unbearable Urges, um, which was, I think, also a covert reference, perhaps, or maybe this is giving him too much credit, uh, to the Gemara. The Gemara says that when somebody uh, feels that they have, it's a very strange Gemara, I believe it's a Gemara in Kedushin, that when somebody has urges that are so insurmountable, so what's the eight? So what do they do? They wrap themselves up, dress themselves up in black garb, and then they go ahead and they go to a city where nobody knows them, and they do what they need to do, and then they return. Now, that's, that requires a sheer in and of itself, but there is this notion of chipus, of searching, and hitchapsut. There is an affinity. This is why we call it Lashon HaKodesh, because of, of, of what the words themselves and the Shorash themselves, nothing is an accident of what they tell us and teach us about, uh, about the concepts that the words and the symbols that the words represent. So the first thing I want to put over here is hitchapsut. But Rabbi Nachman himself, uh, dressing up in disguise is not something that's stam. Uh, that's not, it's not for nothing in Rabbi Nachman's life and thought. Rabbi Nachman didn't just tell stories about Hitchapsut, about dressing up like here in the Tender Enda. And Rabbi Nachman didn't just want uh, or pine to dress up on his own and go somewhere he wasn't uh, known. In Chayim Moharan, uh, Rabbi Nassim tells us Rabbi Nachman in his youth said that he, all he wants is Sheyalim Atzmo He told Rabbi Nassim, he said, if only I could just dress up like somebody that nobody knows, and go around incognito and travel just like the Rav in this story, to go from door to door and hear ostensibly for himself, and that nobody would know who he was. Probably struggling, dealing a little bit, if we could psychologize for a second, with, with the, the burden of being the Baal Shem Tov's great grandson, the greatness that was expected for him. Uh, Rabbi Nachman expect, expressed his great, greatness in a way that nobody could understand. Uh, that, that nobody was ready to understand initially, uh, which is why it's such a chiddush, why Rabbi Nachman called himself such a novelty, that he would express his greatness like this. But Rabbi Nachman himself, in his own life, has episodes where he dresses up. I'll give two episodes. Rabbi Nachman writes uh, about journeying to Kamenetz. Kamenetz was a city nearby that uh, Jews were not allowed to stay the night. And we learned about this in the story of Rabbi Nachman's journey to Eretz Yisrael, how he needed to do something in Kamenetz, and he took his chassid with Shimon together with him, and he swore him that you know their lives were at risk if they were to stay over in the city at night, but they dressed up in order to go ahead and to be in the city. There's another story, maybe it's connected to it, that Rabbi Nachman found there a 
book of secrets from his great-grandfather from the Baal Shem Tov, which was hidden in a cave that Rabbi Nachman was able to access but not tell anybody what he found there. So we do have stories. And then, of course, Rabbi Nachman himself dressed up like a mishuga, dressed up like a madman on his journey to Eretz Yisrael in Turkey so that he, he could reach a level, God bless you, of katnus, of, of smallness, also an echo of the humble king. Uh, if you remember, smallness before he's able to go ahead and achieve the greatness, the godless that Eretz Yisrael, that the land of Israel was meant to give to him. Itself an echo of Reb Zerah going ahead and fasting those, those hundred fasts in order to forget the Torah that he learned in Chutz La'aretz, outside of Israel, in order to obtain uh, anew the light of the Torah in the land of Israel. So Rabbi Nachman himself in his own life would dress up. So, so disguise and dressing up and, and wearing garments that aren't yours and acting like somebody that you are not always in search of something. And to search for something is an important and potent theme in Rabbi Nachman's life. That's, that's point number one. Point number two is, um, is, the, is, is what I think is the central question that, that, that rises to the surface in the story of Tenderend, and, and that is this. Is it possible in this world to rise to a level where we could prove that our intentions are L'shem Shamayim? Is there anybody that we could look at and we could say, I truly believe that this person is L'shem Shamayim? I think about this all the time, you know. I'll be personal. I'm a public figure. That's gross. I'm, in, I'm a shul rabbi, right? So, and, and, I, and I work in a school. Right, so I come in contact, public figure, right? Public figure. So, so, so I, I come in contact with a lot of people and I am conscious every single day of what happens when public figures betray the trust of those who ostensibly trust in them. Right? You only need to read one article about these kinds of people and besides getting sick. And then the, the second thought you say to yourself is, well, how do I know that I'm MS? How do I know that I'm true? Right, these people were trusted as well before they were revealed to be monsters, before they were revealed to be people that were that made a chilol Hashem, that desecrated God's name and hurt people and themselves. So is there anybody that we could really look at and say, I know this person and I know that they're L'shem Shamayim? We could come close if you think about it, but we can never really get there. You never quite know another mind. I think it's impossible to know another mind, to know what somebody else is truly thinking, what they're truly about, what truly motivates them. Especially when money is involved, by the way. Especially when jobs and livelihood and parnasa, when those things are involved, right? That, when that God, when that, when that avodazara gets onto the scene, everything, right? The whole sulam arachim, the whole ladder of values starts to become warped a little bit. And people make all sorts of justifications for themselves. Especially when, 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 the, real world, uh, when the real world collides with, with our idealism, with what we want to be, with what we want to say we actually are, how we, how we present ourselves to the world. So you have your, over here an individual that's presenting himself as a rabbi, and on the other hand, it's presenting himself with the tender end as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a Christian priest. Right? And, and, and that, that juxtaposition is so jarring. Right? And we'll get to that in a second. So is there any way to really know if somebody is L'shem Shamaim? Can, can we ever know about ourselves even? That we're L'shem Shamayim? I think that the answer is not really, unfortunately. That's what it means that, that it's a Alma de Shikra, a world of lies. Olama Emes, when we, when we pass on, that's when the truth comes out. Right? And, and, and the truth came out about this Rav once he was already far, far gone in the Olam Ha'emes, only when his body needed to be exhumed. And this has me thinking about another thing I think about often. Uh, another thing I think about often, you know, Rav Tzadok of Lublin, 
another great thinker, maybe it's in our, our next series, right? So Rav Tzadok HaKonavli, a great Hasidic rabbi, died in 1900. So he, he had the following advice for somebody. He said to somebody, he said to us, he said, every Jewish person should choose a mitzvah, should choose a particular hanhaga tova, something that they do that you don't tell any other person about. Nobody else knows about this. Now, that seems like a rather small, right? At first blush, a small thing, right? I, it's a small thing. I happen to have one myself. I happen to have, I fail with a lot of stuff. I happen to have one myself. I read that, I was like, that is, that is, uh, that is a training device to try and become L'Shem Shamayim, right? Something like that. You don't tell even your closest people that you don't tell. Once you've told, you violated that trust for yourself. Keep one mitzvah, one anagatova, one chubram, one thing that you go ahead and do that nobody else in the world knows about. Okay? And we're going to get to that, probably not tonight because I'm speaking too long about tender end, but this story is so jarring to me. Right? Because I think it cuts right to the core of, of what we, how we think about our religious life, how we think about our identity, how we think about what the goal of all this is, right? And, and we're going to get to it a couple more points in a second. Um, and, and these are mine. If, if they don't make sense, then... That's fine. There's better interpretations, but 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 the question is 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 can we reach Lashain Shemayim? Can we know this in ourselves? I think that that's what this story is about, and and I'll explain in a moment. We forget at the end of the story how cruel the Ashir is. What a wicked thing to do! What a wicked thing to go. To, this rabbi is collecting money, and 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 that's the first jolt of the story. That this is what he says to the rabbi at the beginning of the story. How do I know you're Lashain Shemayim? I'm collecting money. Where do you think it's? By the way, we do this to ourselves, right? That we, we make them maybe for good reason. Everybody that collects money nowadays, they got to have a tuda. Do I know what you're searching for? There's be on the lookouts for, for scammers and everything like that. It reminds me of a story, um, a, a classic story in the Rosenfeld family. Uh, the story goes like this, that uh, outside of Gourmet Glad in the five towns, so, so you know, everybody's doing their Shabbos shopping, and there were, there were uh, at one time, there were a bunch of ladies uh, that were going around on five towns, and every people noticed like an influx almost, and there was a lady outside, and she would just say, Shabbos, Shabbos, it's a magic word, you say Shabbos, and a Jew will open up his pocketbook to you, right? They open up their wallets, say Shabbos Kodesh, so they knew those words. And, uh, and word got around that these people might be a little bit um, scammy. So my, my parents, we have family friends where the, uh, the mother is uh, Romanian, speaks fluent Romanian. And she started talking to them in Romanian. And she started saying, you know, where are you from? And, uh, and they were shocked. She said, they said to her, go away. Go away. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna expose us. So there's, of course, the very real possibility that people are being duplicitous. Right? We come in contact with Mifursamim Shel Sheker, with people who are, who are trying to go ahead and to one-up us and take something from us and trick us. The world is filled with tricksters and liars and deceitful people and cheats, that, to be sure. Right? There, there is a, a tremendous cost to, to innately trusting people's good intentions. But what, what cruelty? What cruelty from this usher to the rabbi to make him do such a thing? But we forget that at the end because of the magnitude of the act that we've just witnessed. This rabbi, this person was collecting staka, or according to the Nusach and Siach Sarfei Kodesh, the Adam Pashat, the regular person. So they've undergone a fate worse than death in order to go ahead and to fulfill this important mitzvah. In order to fulfill the mitzvah of Hachnas's Kala, or the mitzvah of Pidyon Shvuyim, two of the biggest mitzvahs that you can imagine. 
Parenthetically, not mitzvahs bein adam lemakom. They're mitzvahs bein adam lechaver. I think that that's conspicuous, that they're interpersonal mitzvot and not mitzvah bein... I, I ask you, question left unanswered. Let's say the mitzvah over here was for like something achok, for shotness. Right? There are actually stories about shotness and garments. I, I guess not for naught that I mentioned shotness, about whether you have to be poshet bashuk. What happens if you, dis- you discover that your garments have an admixture of wool and linen, a biblical violation in the middle of the marketplace? Right? It might actually be uh, another thing, jump, just jumping up right now, another maybe key to understanding things. Right? That's an, an busha, an, an embarrassment of, of having your garments stripped from you in public. It's a dream that I think many people can relate to. Right? Just finding oneself totally stripped of all, of all garments and, and exposed to the world in the most uh, fundamental, embarrassing, humiliating kind of way. That's a nightmare. Right? This is a nightmare, this kind of a story. Right? So we forget it because of the magnitude of the act that the tzaddik does. He will, he's willing to suffer it for these mitzvot. So at the end, the question can now be asked, maybe the usher is right. Why do I ask that question? Because maybe it was only through the usher, the wealthy person, putting the rabbi to this test of the three times, offering him this opportunity that the rabbi was able to achieve something monumental. His body didn't decompose. He had achieved the, the sine qua non of the Jewish religious experience, which is, which is described in, Has, in Hasidic works as, as you, whatever you want to call it, bitl hayesh, abnegation of, of our reality, of ourself. Or his pashtus hagashmius, the ability to go ahead and to totally shirk off, right? Mortal bonds, the, the physical things that, that draw us down and hold us to this world, right? That Sadiq was able to do that. His body didn't decompose because, because his body and his soul were totally in harmony. There was no need for the body to decompose. It's an important motif in Jewish thought, right? That there's no chibut hakever. That the, that the grave has no effect. Death has no effect on this person. They've cheated death. They've risen above everything that we see, all the lies. That's a, is there any greater outcome for a person than that? We, we say, we've, we, we've quoted often, we quote the final Medrash uh, in the Torah, in the Medrash Rabbah and Dvarim, that says, the Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, that even Moses, only from top above, was he, was he fully godly. From the bottom, from the waist down, he was still a man. This tzaddik had achieved everything except for that foot. Because of the act that he did, and, 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 and the priest's garments turn into the marker of this great holiness, of this great kedusha that he has. Now, even further, so maybe, maybe the usher, maybe the wealthy man, by putting him to this test, gave an opportunity for transcendence, gave him the opportunity for complete self-abnegation. Right? Perhaps it was the greatest chesed, it's the greatest act of teaching, and the rabbi was, the rabbi didn't have to do it, but he did it because he recognized the opportunity given to him to go into Jesus. But it was only something that would be known, maybe never. Right? The very fact that we, that we even have the story would be a miracle because the rabbi never did it for anybody to ever know what would have become of him. It was only something between him and God. Uh, ostensibly through the story, another motif in nightmares is that you can't explain yourself to the other person. How Kafkaesque. Right? I'm stuck in this horrendous situation. It would be so easy for the rabbi just to tell people, actually, I'm doing this because I'm raising money. But that would be us. That would be the excuses as we try and reach that transcendence. Thank God. I was reading this. I said, I put it in my notes. I said, I said um, you know, this painful truth, this painful truth that this rabbi reached, 
the painful truth that he went through, right? We're very lucky that we never are really tested on this terrifying level. That we never really have to go through it. I would, I would say an equivalent would be, an equivalent would be, just to go back to maybe what I was alluding to before, somebody going through the worst kind of public humiliation you could imagine, but doing that L'shem Shammai. What a level. What a scary place. You shudder if you think about it too much. That kind of truth is terrifying. A few more things, right? A few more things is, is that's where I feel that the mushal here, the parable here collapses a little bit. Because immediately my thought was, doesn't the rabbi have a family? Doesn't the rabbi have people that are dependent upon him? What about himself? Maybe you could go ahead and you could say that, that it's going to take down the honor of Torah. That too, that too is a hierarchical value. So that's where the subversiveness of the story seems to come in a little bit. So, and, and, and furthermore, you know, we, uh, Rav Nir uses the word artilayut, right? Um, the Gemara has a beautiful, uh, funny language. It says, Rami, Rami de Masana, uh, something you go out, artilayut, Rami de Masana, wearing your shoes but totally naked, right? The rabbi is stripped of everything, but the usher doesn't just demand of him that he strips himself, which would be understandable, strips himself of his rabbinic garb, maybe just loses his rabbinic honor, but they strips him of his identity, strips him of his religion. No religion, right? He makes him do the completely unthinkable, the complete opposite. Right? It doesn't just stop at take yourself down from your level, lower yourself from this level of being a rabbi, but it's, it's raid me, come down from who you are. It's a, to- it's a total dissociation of self. Totally dissociative. Madness. Madness. One or two more things. The concept of busha, the concept of embarrassment that comes to the fore in this story, that the rabbi is able to go ahead and suffer through the embarrassment, is uh, an important motif in, um, in, in, in the Talmud. Right? We have a few gemaras that, that liken embarrassment, especially public embarrassment, to a fate at least equal to death, right? The Gemara in Brachas tells us, Kol Amalbim, uh, sorry, the Gemara in Bava Metziah tells us, Kol Amal, Bava, Bava something. Kol Amalbim Pnei Chaveyor Berabim, Kilu Shofech Damim. Anybody that goes ahead and embarrasses their fellow human being in public, it's as if they've spilled blood. And Tosva says there, Tosva says, yeah, it's an Apizrai of Shvichas Damim. It's as it, it's, it's Kipshuto, right? This is an aspect of spilling blood. To be malbin somebody, whatever your right, whatever your religious values, whatever comes into it, to embarrass somebody else in public, who does that? Who does that? It's also paradoxically the greatest kapara, that great tzaddik Rabbi Nachman himself. We saw we're willing to undergo bushos, we're willing to undergo embarrassment, and to see it as 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 a, an exculpatory measure, an expiatory measure, something to cleanse us of our sins. Or that, or that embarrassment would be something that cleanses us. There's a story, a very difficult story, of two Jews that came into Stipler Gone. I have a hard time believing it. But two Jews came into Stipler Gone, and they, Stipler Gone was a, 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 you know, a, a very, uh, a, 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 I, don't, I don't have English words. Stipler Gone was a Gone. Big, important Lithuanian rabbi, Gone, knew all the Torah. So they enter into his chambers in Bnei Brak of the Stipler Gon, and apparently Stipler Gon yelled at them immediately when they came into the room, screamed at them, embarrassed them. Well, Stipler Gon would never embarrass somebody, Stam, right? That, what kind of a story would that be of a tzaddik? 
And one of them ran outside immediately, the story goes, was hit by a car and died. Another one goes ahead and stays and, 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 and withstands and, and is okay. And they asked the stipler going later, what, what, what is this? Stipler going says, when they came into my office, again, I, I can't vouch for the veracity, but this is a story that's told. Stipler going says, when they came into my chambers, they saw the angel of death was standing behind them. And I knew that the only way to go ahead and to save them would be that they undergo busha, that they undergo embarrassment. One of them was unable to undergo the embarrassment. One of them was able to undergo the embarrassment and was thus saved. A difficult concept. But the concept of, 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 of busha is being the fate closest to death. Big public embarrassment. Right? I'm always happy when I, when I mess up a speech in shul or when I, when, I misstate, when I misstate something or mess up a time and you get corrected and everything like that. It's good because that's an easy busha. I could laugh it off. I'm not going to lose my job because of that. But like I could say, okay, at least that's, that's what Josh Rosenfeld can tolerate. And I'll put that in my back pocket. And I'll say, okay, that's something that's, that's going to be like a little, a little token that's going to help me avoid. This is probably not a normal way to go about religious life. But maybe he'll help me avoid the next hit. The next, the next, uh, you know, the next um, thing that doesn't necessarily go my way. Maybe this busha is what allows me to avoid that. Probably not the healthiest way to, to think about religious life. But what can I do? So busha is something also we say, Noach lo la'adam, now the Gemara Brachos tells us, Noach lo la'adam la'hashlichatzim le'kivshon sh'es. It's better for a person, it's easier for a person. Noach, fitting for a person to toss themselves into a burning furnace rather than to go ahead and to embarrass their friend in public. There's so much more to talk about with this story. I, I'll, I'll say one other thing that's important over here just because it's germane to the Parshios Shavua. We're going to find after Yaakov, Yaakov Avinu, Bikesh Yaakov Lasheves Peshalva, Yaakov Avinu who's, who suffered and, and had difficulties throughout his life, had hit after hit. And, and we're told, Chazal tells us, the Yaakov Avinu, Vayeshev Yaakov Eretz Migurei Aviv, Miad Kafzalav Shel Yosef. Right after Yaakov Avinu thinks, okay, now I can settle down. Now I could go ahead, I could relax and, 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 and take with me the wisdom that I've augured from a difficult life. Kaftal of Rogzosh Yosef. So the whole episode of the brothers and Yosef jumps upon him. After Yaakov Avinu has gone through all of that, so the Torah tells us, Vayavo Yaakov Shalem Ir Shechem. Yaakov arrived whole to the city of Shechem. And Rashi tells us, and this is number seven, if you want to read inside. We've skipped a few things. Number seven, Rashi tells us, Shalim begufo, shenisrapi mitzla oso, Shalim mibamono shalachisar klum mikol osa doren shalim, betorasa shalachach tamuda beves lavan. Yaakov Avinu came to Shechem whole, which means that Yaakov Avinu was Shalim in his goof. He had battled with Saro Shal Esav. He had battled with the angel of Edom. Edom is, of course, Esav's descendants are always likened to Christianity, which was seen as the great oppressor, the stronger oppressor in Europe at the time. Right? That we were afraid, we lived in fear of them. And Yaakov Avinu had the tzaddik, Yesod Olam, the tzaddik, the foundation world, had done battle with them. And had lived in their household, and had, and had greeted them face to face, and, and stared Esav directly in the eye with his 400 men behind him. Yaakov had done that, and Yaakov, Bechira Avos, right? the great of the patriarchs, the one who combines all the aspects of Avraham and Yitzchak together. Yaakov, you know, comes to Shechem after all this, he's Shalim. He's repaired himself after the fight with the angel. Where the angel grabbed him where? On the leg. The Gid Anasha. 
That was the one place where Esav was able to get, maybe that's the leg that's revealed in, in, in the story in the tender end, of the, the leg that becomes decayed. The one part where even this tzaddik, even this rod was never fully able to get there. Even he wasn't totally complete. Yaakov Avinu, Yaakov Avinu was shalim, you shalim b'mamono, the money you tried to offer to Esav, none of that was depleted. Shalim b'torah, so he never forgot what he learned. The Torah, even in the house of Lavan, maybe Yaakov is the archetype for the Rev here in this story. Furthermore, furthermore, of course, there's the matter of the Gidanasha and, and, and of Esav, and Esav as being associated and represented by Christendom. Uh, maybe these are all elements that come into the story. So as you see, it's just a paragraph. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot. There's a lot here. But the tzaddik achieves ego death. This Rav achieves, the, achieves what we seek. He becomes subsumed in God, so to speak. And that's the true, that's the emes. Are we able to forego our identity? Are we able to forego ourselves? Are we able to forego that which we hold to be the most essential truths to ourselves l'shem shamayim for the sake of God if we are then we know we're emes that's that's a high bar indeed so where do I get the um, where do I get the right or where do any of us get the right to read these stories like this especially in light of Miron's comments that we mentioned earlier so I want to I want to read something from Siach Sarfei Kodesh source number one over here and uh, and now I've done the the silly thing of deferring the story of the tainted wheat to yet another week. Maybe we'll have to finish up with the wheat, but the theme was madness. So it says over here in Tziach Sarfi Kodesh, and this is from the introduction to Sipure Maisio. It's source number one on page 12. So I'll read in Hebrew and translate as well as we go along. Shamanu mi piva kadosh beferush. So it's reported, we heard directly from Rinachman of Breslov Sha'amar. So this is maybe the counterbalance to Miron's comments, as compelling as they are. Every single word of these ma'asiyos, there's tremendous intent and intention behind these words. They're meant, they're here, every word is significant, every aspect of the story is significant to teaching us something. And anyone that changes a single word from these stories, from the way that they were told over, so anybody that changes it over the way the story was told itself, so then you're taking away from the story. Everything is there, right? Like a tapestry, it's in a mosaic, it's put in place in order to communicate the message of the story. I would say that every element in Tendo Reenda, at least as it's presented, can be, can be darshaned, can be perfectly situated into communicating this profound Torah, this profound idea that this story communicates to us, that only a story could communicate. Ba'amar and Rabbi Nachman said, that these stories are tremendous novel ideas, great novel ideas, wondrous things, terrifying, massive, incredible, awe-inspiring. And even if you think you've understood it, there's deeper levels and there's deeper levels of interpretation all the way down or all the way up. And even though it seems that we're just reading some story of a rabbi who dressed up and, and got himself mocked in public, these stories are stories to, that, that are fit to be told. So stand up in shul and tell these stories from the bima. This is Torah. 
because they're great, wondrous, awe-inspiring ideas. Even one who is totally familiar with Jewish works, with holy books and, 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 uh, and, and Jewish philosophy and learning, and especially in Kabbalah, They'll be able to ascertain a few details. They'll be able, as Miron said, to fill in a little bit of the, of the void with their pegs of understanding when they read these stories. It's only if you pay close attention. So maybe I, I, I really had wanted to tell this story. So we're going to finish off with the story on page 10. The last page over here. I know it went from 12 to 10. This is taken from last week. Previously, we had told the story of the Maisim Indic, the turkey prince, in honor of Thanksgiving, right? The turkey prince. So there's a very similar story, and again, uh, r- circling on this theme of madness, on this theme of, of holy madness. Um, remember also that when we told a portion of the story of the seven beggars, right? Remember how they, remember the gardener, right? Where did they think that the gardener was, that they were throwing stones at him? They thought the gardener, the person who was responsible for that beautiful garden that had all the reichos hatovos and maros hatovos, the great smells, scents and subtle sounds of the beautiful world, right? That that Ganani, the gardener, who had returned as they were fixing up the country, had been filled with lies, of course. So that Ganani, they thought he was Meshuga. The gardener, they thought, they thought that gardener was, was, was a crazy person and they threw stones at him, much like in this story. And then afterwards they said, Ulai zeha Ganani be'emet. Maybe it's actually the real gardener. Maybe this person we think is mad is actually the one who knows the truth. And maybe we're the ones that are mad for thinking that he's the Meshuga. So remember, this theme comes up before. And I, and I want to preface with something from Sefer Hamidot. It's not in your source sheets. Sefer Hamidot was a collection that Rabbi Nachman built, at least the first part of it. Rabbi Nachman built in his youth of aphorisms connected to specific character traits until Rabbi Nachman had indeed mapped out uh, many, many of, uh, of, of the essential character traits and the given pithy aphorisms to go ahead and to understand them. Sefer Amidos. And in Sefer Amidos, on the, on the Erech, in the entry for truth, Rabbi Nachman says the following scary thing. This is number 31, if you're looking for it. Uh, meaning number 31, if you have a Sefer Amidos, Chelek Aleph, you look in MS, and Lamed Aleph, you'll find that Rabbi Nachman says... He says, Someone who wants to turn away from evil. And you look around and you say, there is no truth in this world. So either Rabbi Nachman is giving advice or Rabbi Nachman is telling us what happens to a person that truly sees the world for what it is, that they make themselves like crazy people. Kishota, like a fool. And, and, I, and I hasten to add that the Gemara tells us in Bava Basra that the Gemara says, Amr of Yochanan, Rav Yochanan says, Mion Shecharav Beis HaMikdash, from the day that the temple was destroyed, prophecy was taken from the prophets and was given to children and to fools. They're the ones that have prophecy. This is such an important idea in Rabbi Nachman's thought. And Professor Tzvi Mark wrote a book about Rabbi Nachman that was translated into English, and the title in English is Mysticism and Madness where he riffs on this theme, the Rehnachman is constantly telling us that it is our job, almost the insurmountable task of our religious life, to cast off our intellect, to cast off our rationalism, to cast off our understanding of the world in order to properly serve God. 
that if we're stuck, if we're kavul in the bonds of rationalism, in the bonds of our empirical understanding of the world, we'll never know God because God cannot be empirically understood, because God is not rationally understood. God is irrational, above rationalism, above our understandings of the world. And it takes humility to get there because we could go ahead and that's where Rabbi Nachman, who had dreams, apparently about meeting the Rambam, why Rabbi Nachman in certain places has uh, lobs intense bikoret, intense criticism against the Rambam. Sichos Ran, for example, in a number of places. That he felt that rationalism only gets you to a certain point, but it will never get you to where you need to go in trying to understand God. That maybe madness is the way, or at least seeming mad, needs to be the understanding of God. Uh, in a review of this book that I saw from Professor Alan Brill, uh, so Professor Brill quoted from Michel Foucault, and Foucault said that uh, Foucault wrote often about the institutionalization of society's outcasts, that anybody that's an outcast almost becomes tantamount to madness, and they need to be contained, they need to be brought back into society, they need to be controlled, they need to be institutionalized and regimented so that they don't damage our picture of society. So Yonatan Garb, who also reviewed the book and is quoted by Brill, and Yonatan Garb is one of the great uh, scholars of Hasidut and Kabbalah of our day and age. So Yonatan Garb said, a beautiful turn of phrase, he writes in his review in Eretz Acheret, he says, the madman leaves society for good, while the mystic leaves society in order to return to it with new eyes. That the mystic, like Rabbi Nachman, leaves society, goes there, it still returns. The Baal Shem Tov, we know, leaves society, goes to the mountains and works harvesting coal or minerals from the mountains, leaves it in order to return to it, and then emerges back into Mezhbush. Right? And this is also the centrality and breast of the idea of Hitbodidut, that even, even us, we can tap into a little bit of this holy madness. And Rabbi Nachman advises his followers, bar none, that you need to go ahead and separate yourself from society and be alone and talk to yourself and talk to, between yourself and God. Once a day, at the very least, for an hour. Because you need to do that. You need to go mad a little bit in order to return back to society. And we do this with many other things. I think it's why people drink. I think it's, it's, it's a lot of, you know, addiction is a separate thing. But I think it's a, a, a lot of, a lot, a lot of uh, notion of psychedelics, I think, is to try. I go mad in order to go back and to look at the world in a different way. That's the, that's the mystic, the difference between the mystic and the madman, the kavdak to return back with that understanding, whatever the madness gave you. So, with all that having been said, I want to read the story of the tainted wheat. So the tainted wheat goes like this and should be read together with these other stories, I think. There was once a king who was, and we'll finish with this. There was once a king who was also an astrologer. By studying the stars, he learned that the harvest of rye that year would be tainted and anyone who ate of it would go mad. The king revealed this prophecy to his friend, the prime minister, and asked if there was anything they could do. The Prime Minister said, let us set aside some of last year's rye. That way, we won't have to eat the tainted grain. The king thought about this for a while, and then he said, it's not possible to set aside enough of last year's harvest for everyone, but if we alone eat the good rye, we will be the only sane people in a mad, mad, mad world. All the others will look at us as if we are the ones who are mad. So we will have to eat the tainted rye. But let us place a mark on our foreheads to remind us, to remind each other that we are mad, like everyone else. So I'm going to leave the story, a uh, rather taut parable. I'm going to leave it uh, 
bleep anuach right now, without interpretation for now, but with everything we've said about madness and authenticity and facing the world with truth in a world that feels full of lies. So I think the framework for understanding this parable is ready and available to us. We're going to continue next week upon this theme. We still have to tell the story of the wealthy miser and the blind musician. We still have to tell Maisami Bitachim, which will hopefully be our last story. And I thank you all so much for learning together with us.